you want to know our mission and what we are about here at Crosspoint Baptist Church, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. We want everybody to know Jesus and love you. Come to love Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then live their life for King Jesus. That's what we're about. So we're going to continue, and we've been calling this series How God Makes Bad Men Good, the book of Romans. And I titled it like that because I want you to remember what Romans is about. The fancy way of saying it is the imputed righteousness of Christ, meaning we are all spiritually bankrupt. There's nothing good in us. And yet when we place saving faith in Jesus Christ, his righteousness is imputed into our account, if you Excuse me, I got choked up there. Our account, if you will, and he and God the Father sees us as he sees his son. And so that's how we're made good. Not that we're good, but that he's good. With that said, we're going to continue. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We're going to be in verses 1 and 2, only two verses this morning. Promise I'll cover more verses than just that. A sermon I'm calling Living Sacrifice. As you're getting your Bibles there, I heard a story of a, of a wealthy businessman. And this businessman, he took a trip to Cancun, Mexico for some business. And while he was there, he decided, well, I'm in, I'm in Cancun. I might as well go to the beach while I'm here. So he took a little venture down to the beach for a few hours just to, to soak in its beauty. And as he was there, he saw a fishing vessel coming in. And this fishing boat, you could see, had a huge fish attached to it. And so this businessman went up to the captain of the fish, his captain of the boat, and said, man, you had a great day of fishing. And fortunately, this individual spoke English, and they could have a conversation. And the captain of the boat said, man, I certainly did. This fish that I've caught, it's, it's enough to not only feed my family, but also I'm going to sell a bit of it. It's going to be able to keep my family comfortable for, for some time. And the businessman said, well, are you going to go back out again today? And the captain said, no, no, I'm, I'm done for the day. I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to do some other things. And the businessman said, well, it's still kind of early in the day. What are you going to do with the rest of your day? And the captain said, man, I'm going to, I'm going to go home and play with my kids, maybe take a siesta with my wife, and, and then I'll probably get up in that afternoon, and I, I promise my wife I'm going to take her out on the town, and we're going to meet some friends. It's going to be just, we're going to have a great time. And the businessman said, you know, I think I might be really able to help you. He said, I have my MBA from Harvard, so I, I know business. And let me just tell you, if you worked a bit harder, if you worked a bit longer, if you caught some more fish, you'd be able to sell those fish for a huge profit. And then when you sell those uh, more fish for a huge profit, you can buy more boats. And then when you buy more boats, you can, you can catch more fish. And then you can hire captains to run those boats for you. And the businessman said, once you get that really going, if you're really going, you could probably open your own cannery business here. And then when you've opened your own cannery business, all the other captains, they're going to have to bring their, their fish to you and, and, and deal with you. He said, and by that time, if you really get going, you'll probably have to move. You'll probably have to move to like Mexico City. And if it really gets going from there, maybe you have to move to, to L.A. And if it really takes off, maybe you'll have to move all the way to New York City and put your, your cannery on the U.S. Stock Exchange. He said, you will be a multimillionaire. And the captain of the boat said, well, how long is that going to take? The businessman thought. And he said, well, maybe 20 years or so. The captain said, well, what happens then? What happens in 20 years? He says, this is the best part. Are you ready? After 20 years of this, you can retire. And the captain said, well, well, then what do I do when I retire? And this man thought about it for a minute and said, well, I guess you could spend more time fishing and take time off and go spend time with your kids and then maybe 
spend the afternoon taking a little siesta with your wife, and then in the evening you can go out with your friends. He thought about it and said, never mind, it was just an idea. Does that sound like anybody you know? (laughs) Don't answer that question, because it might be you. That might be, you might be the one that's thinking about that. But for Christians, our life is not supposed to be spent in the accumulation of wealth. But sadly, there are so many people that call themselves followers of Jesus Christ. And, and the life and the, the mindset of that businessman is exactly what they think about all day long. So let me ask you this as you sit there. How do you live your life? Before you answer that, let's get into the book of Romans. We've been walking our way through the book of Romans for several months now. And we come to a new section in the book of Romans. There's not really sections, but I like to think of it in sections to help me remember the book and how how Paul organized it. In Romans chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to Romans 3, 20, it's all about the wrath of God. How people are separated from a holy, perfect God because of our own willful sin. And then Romans 3, 21, all the way to 8, 39 is all about the grace of God. Did you know that the grace of God is greater than the wrath of God? Did you know that you can be freely forgiven and you can be brought into a right standing with God by faith? And when that happens, you are adopted into God's family. You are, you are in God's forever family by grace through faith in what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. And then in Romans chapter 9, 10, 11, Paul explains how God is going to deal with Israel's past, present, and future. How God did not divorce his chosen people. And that at this time, God is primarily working through the church. But there's going to come a day when God completes his work and he tells the whole world about him through his chosen people. And now we come to Romans chapter 12. Okay, this new section. And I like to call this the application section of the book of Romans. Okay, because the word of God, the, the Bible, is not just merely a book that we are to memorize. That does help. It helps to memorize it. But there's plenty of people that that's all they treat this book. Is that they're to memorize and be able to call on Bible facts and, and spit out verses at a drop of a hat. But this letter that Paul has been writing, he's been telling us about the imputed righteousness of Christ. That once you know all this, there's something that you should be doing with what you have been told. They enter the five last chapters of the book of Romans. Now that we've been signed, sealed, and delivered into God's forever family, there's something that we should be doing with with that which we now know. And you're wondering, well, what are we supposed to be doing, Pastor John? I'm glad you asked. Pick up your Bible, Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. The word of God says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You know, if if you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian and you're not doing this, then you are not living the life that you're supposed to be living. I've heard it said that God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. Let me ask, anybody here ever been to Disneyland? Any hands? Disneyland people? Okay, about half of you. I remember our kids were real little. They were tiny and we took them to Disneyland. It was, you know, the happiest place on earth. 
It is unless you're paying to get in that place. But anyways, we, we get there and our kids are so tiny. Like, Dad, we want to go on. It's a small ride ride. We want to go. I'm like, okay, this is a once in a lifetime. Turns out twice in a lifetime thing for them. So we are going. We took them on the it's a small ride ride. And if, have you ever been on that ride? Well, in case you haven't, for those who've never been on that ride, let me in you how this ride goes. You get on this little boat and it takes you through all these different cultures and you get to see all the different cultures of the world. But before you get on that little boat, you have to stand in line. You have to stand in line for a long time. And while you're standing on that line, you get to enjoy the It's a Small Ride song. Do you, do you know the song? Yeah, you know it? It's a small world. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. It's a small world. It's a small world ride. That's what I'm getting on. Okay. I'm, I get excited up here when I'm preaching. I just can't help myself. I'm jumping into it, but I'm, here I'm going for it. So it's a small world ride. Okay. And so this is how the song goes, in case you don't know. It says, it's a world of laughter. It's a world of tears. It's a world of hope. It's a world of fears. There's so much that we share. It's a time we're aware. It's a small world after all. Everybody with the chorus. It's a small world after all. Again, it's a small world after all. Okay, that's enough. We can't take it. No more. <laughs> I know, you're going to be singing that song at lunch today. You're like, I can't get that song out of my head. It's in crest in there, right? Well, anyways, as you stand in line, you get to hear that song. And then you finally get on the boat, and you get to hear that song and then you make a turn, and you get to hear that song, and you get to make another turn, and you, may, you hear that song again. And then by the, by pretty soon, you, you can't get it out of your head. The first time you hear that song, it's, it's mildly entertaining. The second time you hear that song, it's tolerable. About the third time, it's starting to get annoying, right? The tenth time you hear that song, I'm ready to jump out of that boat and make a swim for it. I can't take it anymore. Get me away from this song. And I'm telling this story because that's life that's lived by Christians that are, that's, we're living for anything other than for Jesus. It's just the same thing over and over and over again, the same routine day after day. The first time you started, it was pretty cool. Hey, this is fun. Okay, I can see how this is enjoyment. And then, then it's, you're only tolerating it. Eventually, it goes to, you'll go to any extremes to change it up because it's all pointless. There's no meaning. There's no end. And the only end is just to end it all. But maybe, just maybe, there's more for a follower of Christ. I mean, think about it. People search for meaning in all sorts of things. And we're going to call them small world things. They try to find meaning in all sorts of different small world things until they can, they can find themselves, if you will. They try to do it in a career. Maybe it's in education. They try to find meaning in relationships. And all these things are goal that give people purpose in life. They give us meaning in life. We use these things to motivate ourselves. But the problem is if these things are taken away, then our whole life falls apart. Everything's wrapped up in a relationship. Everything's wrapped in a career. Everything's wrapped up in finishing your education. You start going after it, and then it becomes a repeating cycle. And a repeating cycle never seems to end. But a Christian, we're supposed to be living with a purpose. Christians need to be living for something that we are motivated to, to live for. And Paul gives us one right here. Paul would answer that. He would say, since Jesus Christ died for you in your place, live your life for him. 
Since he went to the cross, hung on it, bled, shed his blood for your sins in your place, not only give your life, but live your life for him. And you're thinking, okay, Pastor John, how exactly do we do that? I'm glad you asked that question because Paul gives us the answers. Look again in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. So in this passage, Paul is making an appeal. And who's he making an appeal to? Paul tells us, brothers. What Paul means is fellow believers, other Christians, people that call themselves followers of Jesus Christ. That's who Paul is writing this section of his letter to. This chapter is addressed to all the Christians that would read. Have you noticed in the book of Romans, Paul is very distinct of who he is writing to. He makes a distinction between different groups of people. He says there are Jews, there are Gentiles, and there is the church. You know, and, and, and there's some chapters where Paul is talking to the entire world. That's all of us, religious, non-religious, everybody. He says we are all under the wrath of God. And then he starts talking about the grace of God. And the grace of God is available to, again, everyone. But in Romans 9, 10, 11, he's speaking to the Jewish people specifically. But now we come to Romans chapter 12. And in Romans chapter 12, Paul is writing to Christians. So if you call yourselves a Christian, it's time to start underlining your Bible. Start to, start to highlight the Bible because this is written to you. Years ago, before I went to ministry, I, I spent a number of years as a hospital, hospital supply rep for a major medical company. And every now and then, we'd receive an email, and there'd be something on there you don't want. It's called a product recall. The product recalls are terrible, okay? The first thing I always did, I would open the document, and I would scan the document. You know what I'm doing? I'm seeing if I'm named. Because if my products are listed in the product's recall, it's going to be a bad day for me, right? So I want to look, am I on there? Because if I'm not, then I can just simply delete the email and go about my day. But if my products are listed, I better get ready to work. Well, guess what? We are listed in Romans, the book of Romans, specifically chapter 12. We are named in the document. You know what that means? You're ready to do some work. Well, what we're going to be told to do, it's not going to exactly be easy. This is not going to be a walk in the park, what we are being asked to do. So there needs to be some weight behind it because naturally, you and I, we're not going to want to do it. Look in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 again. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Do you hear the weight that Paul is saying here? The weight is by the mercies of God. Paul knew that we were going to need motivation because quite frankly, the Christian life lived the way it's supposed to be lived isn't easy because we still have a fallen nature. We still have our flesh and we are not going to want to do what we are called to do. What we're being called to do, it's not going to come naturally for us. Naturally, Christians are going to want to live like non-Christians. We're going to want to do the same things. And, and, and if you remember back in Romans chapter 6, Paul said, may it never be. So to help motivate the Christians to live the Christian life, Paul reminds the believers of the mercies of God. In case you forgot what the mercies of God are, let me just kind of highlight a couple so far in the book of Romans. How we were all under the wrath of God. We were all willfully chose to sin. That we are all separated from God because of our sin. That's Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. But then Paul said we can be freely forgiven by faith. 
just believing that Jesus Christ, he is God come in the flesh. And what he did in that, on that cross was for you, for me, in my place. And that what is enough to make you right before God is to believe just like Abraham did. Because God, he believed in God and was counted to him as righteousness. That's Romans chapter 4. And then how we have this guaranteed hope of heaven coming our way. And the worst parts of life, all the trials, all the bad stuff we go through, it is molding us, shaping us, changing us into the very image of Christ. That's Romans chapter 5. Then in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, it says we were slaves to sin, but we've been freed. We've been freed from the law, free from sin. We've been adopted into God's forever family. And how we have the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, residing in us. That, 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 that's Roman, the, Romans 6, 7, 8. And then he talks about the Jewish people in Romans 9, 10, and 11. How God's going to keep all of his promises, every one of them, down to the tiniest little minutia. All these mercies we've been studying, we've been looking at for 22 weeks now. Paul has been compiling in this letter called Romans Paul is saying, this is what Paul is saying. Live as if you've been justified. Live as if you've been forgiven. Live like you are bound from heaven. That is Romans chapters 1 through 11. In Romans chapters 1 through 11, Paul has been taking us to, to school. Paul has been laying the foundations, laying out these truths, teaching them to us. Romans chapter 12 is the graduation chapter. Paul is saying, now that you've graduated, it's time to work. You know, there's something that we all attend in this country around the age of five that's called kindergarten. Then 13 years later, we graduate from something called high school. And for some of us, we go on to higher education and get bigger degrees, sometimes four years, sometimes even longer. What if there was somebody, they did all that, they went all the way, they got their PhD, they've graduated, now they've graduated, they say, you know what, I want to go back to kindergarten. I want to do it all over again. We would say, you're crazy. We would say, it's time to get to work with, do something with all this education you have attained, right? I'm saying this because that's a lot of Christians, They've learned all the elementary principles, but they don't want to do something with all the which they've learned. Once you've learned Romans chapter 1 through 11, it's time to start doing something with that which you've learned. That's Romans chapter 12. Quit being a professional student and get to work. And you're thinking, okay, what do we do? Look in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 again. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. Here's my first point for us this morning. Point number one, in order to worship God, we must present our bodies. You know, this is where we say, hey, God, I love you. What you've done for me, it's, it's beyond measure. Here's my body. Here's my body. You take it. It's yours. You do. It's not mine. It's yours, God. You take it and use it however you choose. My body is, is yours. It's a plain check. Use it however you wish. But here's what many Baptists do. We claim we are following this by what we don't do. We say, oh, God, I don't sleep around. I don't do all the things that non-Christians do in the way of sexual sin. You know, that's a good thing. 
We should absolutely be doing that, but that's not all Paul is talking about here. Christians shouldn't be living that way, but, but there's a whole lot more that Paul is talking about here. Paul said, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. When you hear the word sacrifice, that should bring up the ideas of Old Testament priest stuff. Because in the Old Testament, what happened? A believer, they would bring an animal to the priest. It would be a lamb or a bull or a turtle dove or some animal. And the priest would take that animal and he would slaughter that animal. And he would place it in the altar. And then that, that, that animal would usually be consumed by fire. Usually all of it. So Paul is saying here, you do it. You don't take that animal to a priest. You do it. But guess what? There's not going to be some animal. You're going to be the animal. You're going to do it. So let me kind of clarify something here. Christians don't only worship on Sundays. We worship on Sundays, but we worship on Mondays, on Tuesdays, on Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays. Every single day is a spiritual day of worship. Everything you do, everything you say, everywhere you go, every second of the day is an act of worship to God. And so believers don't offer dead sacrifices. They offer themselves as a living sacrifice. But here's the problem. There's a problem between dead sacrifices and living sacrifices, right? Living sacrifices, they tend to crawl off the altar, if, if it's a dead sacrifice, no, it's dead, it's on the altar, this is going to be really easy. It's not going to move. But living sacrifices, this is kind of how it goes. We, we offer ourselves, we say, here I am, God, you take me, you use me. I'm up on the altar and I'm thinking, okay, God, I'm all yours. I love you, I cherish you, my life, you do what, what squirrel. And we just walk off the altar. That's us. There's something that distracts us and we hop off the altar and we go searching after that squirrel, that, that fishing boat experience that we talked about earlier, right? And then we're chasing that thing, whether it be education or work or relationships or you name the whatever we're chasing. Then we go, oh man, I'm living for something I shouldn't be living for. I'm supposed to be a living sacrifice. And we stop and we turn around and we go back to the, the altar. We put ourselves on the altar and go, okay, God, I messed up that time. But here I am again, and I love you, and I cherish Squirrel, and we just walk off again. Okay, I'm the only one. Stop it. Okay, this is all of us. We're all in this boat together, right? You see, the problem with living sacrifices is we become disobedient living sacrifices. You see, this sacrifice, it, it has to be done over and over and over again. Because far too often, we just get this mindset where we go, well, it's my body. I'll, I'll do whatever I want, right? That's how unbelievers live. As Christians, we shouldn't be living like that. We're supposed to be, be different. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Paul says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You know, if you ever were in the old, you study your Old Testament, you read about the temple. The temple was just that. It's a temple. The temple was treated like a temple. There's no party going down in the temple. Okay, the temple was used for the worship of God and that alone. And Paul's saying right here, he's saying, that's your body. You don't get to use your body however you choose to use your body. You don't get to use it and abuse it like a non-believer would. 
Our bodies are the base operation for the worship of the one true God. Isn't that how non-believers use their bodies to worship the devil? We don't think about that, but that's what they're doing when you're worshiping the devil. It's like just using your body however you choose. Remember what Paul said back in Romans chapter 3, verse 12? He was talking about the, the worship of how they worship the devil. He says, look in verse 12, all have turned aside together and they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Just as human depravity is revealed through our body, also human spirituality is, is, is revealed through our body. That's not how we're supposed to be living. You're supposed to be the opposite of that, of Romans chapter 3, 12. We're supposed to be doing something different. You know what we're supposed to be doing? We're supposed to have feet that are walking in God's path. We're supposed to have lips that that speak God's truth. We have hands that reach out to the needy of this world. We have ears that listen to broken hearts with the heart of Christ. And we have mouths that spread the gospel message of the good news around the world. Paul says to live this way is the only acceptable thing to do. Look in Romans 12, verse 1 again. Paul says, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is what I'll say to that. The smartest thing that you can do is to worship God God by giving him your whole body, your entire body. The Greek word, the word acceptable in the Greek is logikos. It may be your Bible says reasonable, your reasonable service. Listen to how the NIV translates this verse. Romans chapter 12, verse one says, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship, right? So for your life to be a blank check, that's the only true and proper worship that you can offer. You know what that means? That means if you're holding anything back, you're not not offering God your true and proper worship. So maybe just, just, I mean, this list could be exhausted, but here's just a couple ways. Maybe you say, you know, I come to church. I don't really sing the songs. I don't let my heart go. I hold it back. Maybe you say, I go to church, but I don't really tithe. Maybe you say, oh, I go to church, but I don't serve anywhere. If we're holding anything back from God, we are not offering God our true and proper worship. Think of it like this. Since God is so merciful, so good, so abundant, the smartest thing, the most logical thing, the most rational thing, the most reasonable thing, hence the most spiritual thing that you can do is say, here God, here's my body. You take it and you use it however you see fit. And today I hope that makes sense to you. Based off the mercies of God, that's what all of us should be doing we believers should be a living sacrifice presenting our bodies all of us but you know what we're not done yet wouldn't that be nice if paul just stopped it right here it's hard enough as it is if we just started if we started and ended with presenting our bodies a living sacrifice we're not even done yet there's more 
In order to worship God, we must transform our minds. We actually have to transform our thinking. Look in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Paul writes, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Here's point number two for us this morning. Point number two, in order to worship God, we must change our thinking. I remember the first time I heard a pastor really talk about changing your thinking. And I, I'll tell you, as, as a brand new Christian, I said, I'm out. I, I know my thought life. My thought life is too dark. I, I can't do it, God. I was wrong. Not that I've arrived. We, but you can change your thinking if you do it God's way. There's actually two points to this one. That believers cannot be conformed, but they should be transformed. Don't be conformed to the world. That, that means like being put in a mold, being, being shaped by something. What is the something that Paul is talking about? He's talking about the world. Don't do that. But rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So this is something for all of us. We should never just go with the flow. We should never go with the flow, but be transformed. But, but be transforming your mind due to what you think about. And here I need to say this. I don't think I have to, but I should. Here you go. This is easier said than done. So much easier to say this in church than to live it out in the world. I've heard it said that a dead fish can swim down river, but it's going to take some work if you're going to go against the current, right? You know what the greatest fear people have? Most experts call it the fear of failure. I'll say it like this. It's the fear of rejection. We don't like to be rejected. Why at that middle school dance, that little boy sit on the wall and not ask that little girl to dance when he really wants to dance? I know we're Baptists, but we're going to talk about it. Why is that? He's afraid she's going to say no. So rather than get rejected to experience the pain, you know what he does? Nothing. He just stands at the wall. And just watches everything else happening. Never do anything. Just go with the flow. You'll never be rejected. You'll never experience the pain that comes from being rejected. And so since we don't like being rejected, we just go with the flow, right? We just hitch our wagon to the world and we go with it. You know why? It's easier that way. It's more comfortable that way. To be honest, it's a whole lot less painful that way. The Bible says don't do that. Don't live like the rest of the world. Don't live like the crowd. Here Paul says, don't be conformed to the world. Look at it again, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. That's how Paul says it. John would say it. And, and the apostle John, in, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, he says, do not love the world or the things of the world. John says, don't love the world. You're thinking, well, what does John mean? Does that mean we can't love the mountains and we can't go up there and, and just love a beautiful sunrise? Does that mean we can't go to the ocean? I don't think that was, was what John meant. When the Bible says, do not love the world, the Bible's referring, isn't referring to the physical world. It's referring to the ordered system of ideas and people that are against God. Because this world, it's all under the control of Satan. Everything that this world's doing, it goes against the Bible and against God. And it's going against, it's teaming up with unbelievers. It says that the, this world has been blinded, the, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, this world is going to try to get you to chase everything. 
It's going to get you to chase those fishing business we talked of earlier and then not see the beauty of Jesus who is the very image of God. So as believers, we can't love this world. What are we to love? Jesus tells us very plainly, Mark chapter 12, verse 30. Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with your strength. And when you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, something happens to where it actually changes what you think about. It changes how you think about, which changes how you treat people. It, it treat, you change the way you treat people. Why? Because you love God. It matters what we think about because what we think about will play itself out in how we act. You know, we think of ourselves as the greatest, uh, we, are the, the, we have the greatest knowledge in the history of the world, and we think we're like the most informed generation of the world because of technology. And we got these, these powerful surgeons. I got one right here. I got one in my pocket. This computer in my pocket is, it has more power in it than the computer that sent a, uh, some men to the moon. And, and I, at, at times we can use this to, to, to have extreme knowledge, right? I mean, how many times have you been sitting there like, what was the lyrics of that song in 1975? I can't remember. Click, click, click. And you got the lyrics right there, right? I'm the only one. I don't think so. Okay, I can't remember the capital of Greenland. Click, click, click. There's the capital of Greenland. I got it. But I'd argue that we're not the best informed generation because that same technology that gives us all the answers is actually helping to fill our brains with garbage that distracts us. And so the, thus we aren't transformed by the renewing of your mind. How many hours a day do we spend on those phones? Don't answer that question. Just in preparation from this sermon, I was terribly convicted. Like, man, that's me. I mean, do you, do, every time you have a three-minute gap in time, do you find yourself pulling out your phone to scroll through different TikTok videos to, to, to fill that three minutes of gap of time? Again, don't answer that question. I know it. The most powerful instrument we have that we should be using to transform our mind is actually filling our minds with garbage. Here's some suggestions I have to you. Download sermons. I love sermons. My, I, I'm, I'm, whenever, if I'm traveling to Casper, or Billings, or Cody, as I'm driving, I'm listening to sermons like the whole way, and hopefully God is transforming my mind because it's causing me to think about the things that he wants me to think about. Download Bible apps on your computer, and then pick a plan every year to read through your Bible every year. This year, I'm, I'm reading through a chronological plan. This morning, I re read three chapters in the book of Jeremiah. And at the end of this year, I'll finish the Bible, and then I'll do it all over again. And I'm constantly doing that. I'm, we need to make a habit of reading our Bible each and every day. And if you say, well, what if I miss a day? Read twice as much the next day. What if I miss two days in a row? Then write, read three days worth in, in a day to catch yourself up. But when you make a habit of doing that, what happens is that you're doing what it takes to transform your mind, transform your, by the renewing of your mind. And we got to do it for the right reason, too. It can't just be checking a box and going through the motions, right? Because that's classic textbook religion there. Just jumping through the hoops for the sake of jumping through the hoops, crossing the T's and dotting the I's, so hopefully God's okay with what I'm doing. No, that's not the reason we do this. There's a point to why we do this. Look in Romans chapter 12, verse number 2. 
He said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Point number three. In order to worship God, we must understand his will for our lives. Did you know that God has a will for your life? Every mature Christian, we need to have this desire to be living our lives for God. Well, in order to know God's will for your life, first, you've got to be saved. That's step one. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. But then we have to submit. Submit our bodies. Submit our minds to him. Submit all of us so that he will reveal his will to us. And here's what I need to say about that. Typically, it's not a burning bush experience. It's not an audible voice for heaven where God says, I want you to be a missionary in Africa. That's not how it typically happens. Okay? Those, those, that does happen in the Bible, but those events are rare. Okay? What, what we do is we come before God. We, I demand that you speak to me. O sovereign king of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, you speak to me the way I want you to. Whoa, <laughs> that is, that's crazy talk there because it doesn't work like that. God isn't necessarily going to spell his plan for you, for your life out in the clouds. God's not necessarily going to send the angel Gabriel to you to give you a message. That not, it's not how it usually works. Our job is to discover his will for our lives. Okay, To seek after him in the way that he said to You see, a transformed mind, it would actually produce a transformed will. This is what I'll say to that. Or let me call this an informed will. What happens is we submit our bodies, we change our thinking, and what happens is we begin to want what God wants. When you present your bodies, all of you, and your mind is renewed, you start wanting what God wants. Let me say it very plainly, because I'm, I'm a 10-cent kind of guy that like 10-cent words. I don't like those $20 words. I get lost in the weeds. So let me say it very plainly with one verse. Psalms 37, verse 4. The Word of God says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. This is how the terrible Bible teachers preach that verse. They say, Just love God, and He's going to give you everything you want. Here's what I'll say. They're right and wrong at the same time, right? Because then they go on to say, love God. He's going to give you a new house, a new car, and you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. I'll say not so much, right? Let me tell a story to kind of lay out what I'm talking about here. My wife and I, we had some friends, and they're a few years older than us, and they had a daughter. Wonderful young lady. She got saved at a very young age, and her parents told stories that they like the age of 13, she's organizing vacation Bible schools in her backyard for all the neighborhood kids on her own. She just wanted to do this. Fast forward several years, and she graduates from college, and she knew that she wanted to be a missionary with the International Mission Board. And where did she decide to go? To the very heart of Central Asia. Why? Because God put it on her heart. That's why she went there. And then she gets there and she's terribly gifted is speaking different dialects of Farsi. And she's having huge results in an area where they have zero access to the gospel, zero access to the name of Jesus. And I've heard stories where she actually ends up baptizing seven women in secret in her bathtub because if the Taliban knows that she's doing this, they'll kill her. 
Why does she want to do that? Because God put that on her heart. And then the Taliban actually learned about some of her counterparts as there, and so they go and they, they grab them, drag them into the center, square, the center square, city square, and they publicly execute them to make, a, 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 make sure nobody keeps doing that. And soon thereafter, maybe it's days or weeks, she has a bodyguard, comes to her and says, hey, you've got 30 seconds to grab what you can grab because the Taliban's coming and they're coming to kill you. She gets thrown in the back of a truck and, and whisked out and barely made it out of their, with her life, gets flown to Germany, and there she starts working with Muslim refugees because the, the, what was going on in Syria, all these refugees are fleeing to Germany, and she gets there, starts working with the, these people, and then she meets a young man doing the same thing she's doing, and they get married, and she gets pregnant, and they're going to have a little baby, and they say, Hey, we want to go to the heart of Africa and work with people there. Why? Because God put it on her heart. And she goes to Africa, and she eventually has the baby, but the baby was premature, and it has lots of health risks, so they got to get in a truck and, and get to a real hospital as quick as, as possible. And he's in the NICU, and the nurses there are pulling the plug, his, 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 his uh, tubes out of him because that baby has the wrong skin color. I would lose my religion right there. So I'm going to do that to one of my children. And then this couple, the baby eventually survives. And they say, you know, what do we want to do? And they say, let's go back to Central Asia. And most of us here would go, they're crazy. Why in the world would anybody want to do that? I'd say they're not crazy. They're just a living sacrifice. They're submissive to God's will in their life where they give their bodies as a living sacrifice to God. They, they live for God in every single way. And then they're transforming their mind by what they think about to think about what God wants them to think about. So they're submissive for God's will in their life. And you know what happens? God puts that desire in their heart. And most of us would say, that's crazy to live your life like that. But that's just being obedient to God's will for your life. I mean, and I think that's what Paul is saying here in verse 2, Romans chapter 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do you want to know what God's will for your life is? Here's how to do it. Submit your bodies, all of him. Submit your body and, and begin to change your mind what you think about by studying his, his word and then living it out. And you know what that's going to do? God's going to speak to you. He's going to put this desire in your heart, something wild. And like, hey, that's what I need to do. You know, I've sat on this as a pastor. I've sat on the bedside as people as they're dying of old age. Never once, never once did I have somebody say, you know, I wish I would have made more money. That's never happened. Never once did I sit on a bedside with somebody and they said, you know what, I wish I would have spent more time in the office. But I have sat with people on their bedside where their, their life was, was just marked by selfishness and have tons of regrets because they spent their life focusing on stuff that doesn't matter. What matters? I'll tell you what matters in the long run. What matters in the long run is what matters to God. What matters to God? People. People matter to God. And God sent his son to be the sacrifice for mankind so that we can be forgiven and spend eternity with him. 
Like I said earlier, in order to know God's will for life, step one, you gotta be saved. You gotta be reborn. Because if you don't know that, you'll never know the will of God from your life. So you must recognize you're a sinner, that your sin separates from you. God, there is nothing good in you. There's nothing good in me. And Jesus came to die for sinners. You must repent to your sins, recognize, turn from your sins, and turn to Jesus by faith, and you will be saved. The Bible says that everyone who calls on the name, they will be saved. You know, I was saying, I've been listening to, to sermons. I Just this week, I'm driving, I'm listening to a message, and Alistair Begg said, this quote of this verse says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. You must ask yourself, have I called on the name of the Lord? God did not say, whoever goes to church will be saved. The Bible doesn't say, whoever tithed will be saved. The Bible doesn't say, whoever went to Sunday school class will be saved. But whoever calls the name of the Lord will be saved. So I want to ask you as you sit there, have you called on the name of the Lord? If you haven't, then do that now. Say, dear God, I am a sinner. My sin separates from me, but you love me so much that you sent your one and only son to die in my place for what I've done. I give you my life. Save me from my sins. And I pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.